Hello everyone and welcome to Sam Talks Technology, your weekly guide about all things tech and business with Sam Sethi. Welcome to another episode of Sam Talks Technology. I'm joined today by my wonderful friend Katz Keeley. She is the founder and CEO of Beepum. We'll be talking more about Beepum, how they've been working and helping companies through this COVID period that we've all been in. But first of all, she's also got another hat, and that hat is the chair of trustees at Frontline.live. Katz, hey, how are you? I'm really good. Thank you very much. A little bit exhausted, but good. Now, first of all, Frontline Live is what I want to talk to you about. Can you tell everyone who's listening what is Frontline Live and then how you first came about forming it? Because you did an amazing campaign and PPE support early in the lockdown. So what Frontline Live is an online live data map, which means that any healthcare worker who's on the front line who finds themselves short of PPE and therefore is at risk of getting ill, can either tweet a request using three hashtags, hashtag frontline map, hashtag the postcode, so we can make sure they're actually at a healthcare organization, aren't just collecting PPE for some random reason, and then hashtag what it is they need. Or they can fill in an online form at frontline.live and we will then do two things. One of them put a dot, a pin on a digital map so that people can see where their need is. But also now, because of a new partnership with two other organizations, the Healthcare Workers Association and MedShare Supply Drive, it means that we basically have a warehouse of free PPE, which our partners have worked really long and hard for by raising money and getting donations. And because of a partnership with Hermes, it means that as soon as somebody on the front line requests PPE because they're short of it, we can get free PPE to them within 48 hours. How did it happen? When all of this started happening, I moved back to my house in Sheffield. So in lockdown, home alone, on a Zoom call with a friend of mine who is a senior nurse, I'm saying, I can't get a delivery. I'm going to have to go to the supermarket. And she said, okay, I can do one better than that. I'm going into the hospital tomorrow. We don't have any masks. I'll probably be dealing with people with COVID. Mind blown. Can you imagine that feeling? So then, of course, I became a little bit hyper aware of this particular problem. And obviously it was everywhere. On every social media channel, there were doctors, nurses, healthcare workers saying, we haven't got any PPE. That's bad. On the other side, there's this incredible uprising of entrepreneurs who are sitting forward, raising money, 3D printing visors. There's companies like Brewdog and Burberry and and Barber who've pivoted their entire system so they can make PPE to give away. So we've got people desperately in need and scared. Going into work without PPE is, is not something any of us would put up with. And people are trying to solve the problem, but they couldn't see where each other were. And so then I hear on the news one day that Burberry are making scrubs. There's an NHS trust, because they don't know how to contact Burberry, have had to go through to ministers in the government to ask them how they contact Burberry. 
oh, for goodness sake, this is ridiculous. Because I'm all about technical innovation. So I thought it can't be that hard, surely, to find a way of making it easy for people on the front line to say, I haven't got this, so that people who've got supply can get it to them quickly. But yeah, that was my beginning. And I talked to a guy who I used to work with, who used to be at Intel, but he's at UCL now and ranted to him about how hard would it be for us to be able to collect data and put it live on a map so that people can see what's going on. And we chatted for a while, for about an hour, and then I didn't hear anything back from him. Midnight that night, I get an email. He's already got his team on it. I'm like, oh, okay. So then fast forward six weeks, I've had about 40 volunteers who've sat forward the most incredible people, people who are well-known in the industry, people who've got better things to do with their time. They're busy, who've sat forward just going, this is, we're absolutely in, we're going to make this happen. So six weeks later, we launched the service. In the first three-month period, when all of this stuff you're talking about happened, you've got the Times has sat forward, they're giving us full-page spreads, they're giving us full-page adverts, Ocean Outdoor, give us 16 of the biggest digital out-of-home screens across the country so we can put stuff out there. Not one penny changes hands. Snapchat, talk to the general manager. He goes, yeah, whatever we can do to help. We'll do a national campaign for you. Give us your assets. We'll sort it out for you. I have never in my career, we both talk about purpose Mm. a lot. And actually, if you feel a sense of purpose, you will sit forward and you enjoy getting out of bed in the morning. But I've never seen anything like this in my life. The sad side of that is that the NHS, in my humble opinion, and we were talking about this before, it's the jewel in our crown. It's something that we should be quite rightfully proud of. And then as an example, we partnered with Unite in Health who have about 100,000 frontline healthcare worker members, talking to them. And I'm saying, I keep hearing stories from people on the front line that actually the idea of people tweeting their requests is really difficult because nobody dares speak out. And people are being told not to use the service. I'm like, what, frontline map? They're being told not to use it? Yeah, People are being told if they speak out about the fact there are PPE shortages, they will lose their jobs. That's just crazy. If you can't do your job one way, you find another way to do it. That's most entrepreneurs will do. Okay, I can't go X, I'll go Y and I'll find my way around it. Exactly. And the system should be set up in a way. This is not about somebody complaining about something. It's if you don't have PPE, you're putting your life at risk. 640 Doctors and nurses have died because there isn't enough or they haven't got enough PPE. So basically, I'm finding out that it's absolutely known, it's endemic, that people inside the NHS are told not to speak up about things and they're told that they will lose their jobs. So we moved it from just Twitter to having a form where people could uh, report anonymously if they were too scared to speak out. Of the 1,500-ish requests for PPE, I reckon about 80% of them were done anonymously by people who were scared to speak out. And some of the comments they left on those forms were just depressing, frankly. Interesting, though, will be an observation from you. Has it improved or got worse over time? What's your gut feel? 
It's been interesting because there was a point where there was a story all over the media about the fact that management were telling healthcare workers to be quiet. And then Matt Hancock said in the Commons, this is not true. People will be protected. It's definitely, from my perspective, people are less likely to speak out now. And obviously, we had a bit of a downtime where we registered Frontline as a charity because there weren't as many cases. And it gave us time to really consolidate and build partnerships. So we decided in September that we would do a survey to find out whether or not people in healthcare organizations feel confident they're going to have enough PPE to see them through over this next crazy time, which is becoming crazier. Guess how many percent said that they felt fully confident they'd get enough PPE? 20. Eight. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's super low. 8% of frontline healthcare workers believe they will get enough PPE to keep them safe during this time. That's scary. As a number, that's scary. Some part of me goes, okay, the government was caught on the hop and they've had to react. Why they were caught on the hop is a separate conversation, but they were caught on the hop. Do you think now we've caught up with the demand or is there still a demand that's not being met? So I think I think that on mass, there's a lot more PPE. There's a different conversation about the quality and MedShare supply drive. They've done a lot of research onto what the government are saying is okay, that's safe enough PPE-wise. But the truth of the scenario is that all of their PPE is done in a centralised way. So it means it takes time to get supplies to where it's needed. And so I think countrywide, there's definitely less of a problem. But every department that runs out, every organisation that runs out, every dentist, every GP that runs out, they're putting their lives at risk. And therefore, if communities and volunteers and companies want to step forward to try and help, why would they not allow that to happen? If if it were me in government, I'd be going, yes, please, guys, mobilise yourselves. Whatever you can do to help us over this crisis, please do it. So I don't understand, as my entire shtick is, if you can see a problem, then people will rally around to solve that problem. So one thing you wanted to talk about today was the fact that there's a new open source platform available for Front Life. Yeah, so basically what we've realised is in the madness that has been our journey to here, in which not one penny has so far changed hands, that's probably had 60 people working on it, we've built an open source platform, which right now is being used for PPE so that people on the front line can report where they don't have enough PPE and we can make sure they get what they need to bridge the gap. But actually what we've got here is an open source platform that anyone anywhere could use in any crisis where people on the front line need something urgently to allow communities to rally around and solve it. So that's beautiful to me, the fact that actually the potential of that It's very simple, but it's a manifestation of everything I believe, this idea of decentralization and mobilizing communities. It's there to use. And now we're a charity, we're going to be spending a lot of time making sure that it's as robust and easy to duplicate, replicate as possible. Like I say, anyone in any crisis can easily sit forward and set up a decentralized system where, where communities can rally around and solve those problems quickly.
Brilliant. So how would they get hold of somebody to talk to them about that? Would they just go to frontline.live or would they go Frontline.live, yeah, absolutely. It's open source. You click and you can see the code. We're just making sure that it's completely robust now. But frontline.live, alternatively, if they ever want to reach out to one of us, frontline at wearebeep.com. We are always more than happy to talk to people about what we're doing because we're all extremely passionate about it. Brilliant. Now, you mentioned Beep, and you are the CEO and founder of Beep, which is the behavioral empowerment platform, which means you work with companies. What has it been like through 2020, through COVID? How's it been for you? I have to say that it's been beautiful. Why? Because we've both been talking to senior leaders about the need for digital transformation for a really long time. And those senior leaders have nodded sagely and talked about technology and didn't really understand what we were talking about. But now everybody's working from home. Now culture and having uh, resilient ways of working is absolutely everything to people. If you don't have that, you don't have loyalty and you don't have a culture in which people feel rewarded, respected, connected, where you've got trust, transparency, all those things. And so what I've seen is there's been the most extraordinary shift in senior leadership where people have become so much more human and understood in a more visceral way what it is that we're talking about, which is as a senior leader, if you want to be as successful as you can be, you need to not just engage your employees, but you need to create the environments in which those humans can thrive. And if people are in an environment of psychological safety with trust and transparency and autonomy and all of those things, they're going to be more productive. Mm. They're going to make less mistakes. (laughs) It's really common sense. And so now I have really enjoyed, we're doing some, you know, obviously virtual, but intensive sort of leadership development work around the Bible according to BEEP around the behavioral science behind BEEP, um, trying to explain to them why it's important to be an imaginal leader and how they become imaginal leaders, but also empower all of their teams to be imaginal leaders too. Okay, so you've used a term that many people may not have heard of called imaginal leaders. Can you expand on that and what's behind it? You will love this. So when a caterpillar emerges from the egg, inside it has these cells and they're called imaginal cells. And inside the cells, there's the DNA of a butterfly. But those cells are dormant in a caterpillar. So the caterpillar eats as much as it possibly can eat and it gets fatter and crawls along the ground eating whatever it can eat. And then at some point, it turns into a pupa. And it grows these hard walls around itself. At that point, that cocoon is completely mobile, completely defenseless. Inside that cocoon, these little imaginal cells start waking up. And all of the other cells attack them because they're different. So the only way the imaginal cells can survive is by clustering and aligning. And it's only when, the, when those cells become in the majority that it can actually turn into a butterfly. A butterfly is never gonna become 
a caterpillar again. It's something that's live and can move and respond really quickly, all of those beautiful things. Why did I just talk about that? Because I absolutely 100% believe that biology gives us everything we need to understand the kind of systemic nature of companies. But if you think about it, leaders like us have known for a really long time that the future of work is a future that works for people. So we have got different DNA and you do get attacked because you're different and people like to see their own tribal behaviors. And so we've talked for a while about the fact that actually, if you are an imaginal leader, you absolutely need to cluster. You need to find other people like you and you need to support each other, especially inside a large organization, which are a little bit like those cocoons. They're rigid and flexible and they're not in a great place. So imaginal leadership is about those people. Imaginal leaders are leading the sort of charge towards a future of work that works for people. They understand that if you create environments in which humans can thrive, you're going to be a lot more successful as a company. Now that you've been talking to companies about this through COVID, do you think the pennies drop? We talked offline about my belief that COVID is a accelerator, really, for digital transformation. But is that translating into what CEOs and CXOs think? Are they getting it? I think they're getting it and I think they're getting it not just in a cerebral way, but they can see they're experiencing the problems if they're not running their company in the right way. We've done some extraordinary leadership development activity with those large organizations who before the great accelerator, as you're calling it, there's no way they would be doing these things with us because they're rigid and they're the senior mm-hmm. leaders and they know the answers and But there's this beautiful vulnerability in humanity that seems to have come out and people are more open. I I think there are two kinds of companies and people are on a a sort of spectrum between them. Dinosaurs, call them dinosaurs for a very obvious reason, which are still operating in this command and control, siloed, disconnected, immobile way. They will die out. There's no question. And then you've got the talent magnets that are run by imaginal leaders that are creating environments which are agile. And I don't mean that in the kind of doctrine way where people are allowed to get on and fix things as things arise and people are trusted. So yeah, I think that I've never seen, I can't name names, but some of the companies you would know and they're definitely not known for having a kind of agile leadership style, but there's been a massive shift. I have to say, I just interviewed earlier today one of the strategic directors at Hopin, France. And Hopin, if you don't know, I'm sure you do, Kaz, but others, that it, it's just become a double unicorn in under 18 months. It's a UK company, so it's worth $2.1 billion. And they haven't got an office. All of their staff are remote. And they purposely have done that because, going back to the point you said just now, the talent pool that they're dipping into is global. So their belief is that their talent pool is actually a global pool. I think they're recruiting 800 people alone this year. They're doing somewhere in the region of 30 to 40 people a week. And they said there is no way they can get developers or get staff or get marketing people at that level that quickly if it was all to say London. And so they've created this environment which is remote, that is totally at the behest of talent. And so they have no issue with one of their developers upping sticks for three months and working from Tenerife or going to Bali and working. It's about what they deliver, not where they're based. 
And I think that's really interesting. And they're proving companies can grow and be hugely successful while living within this post-COVID style of, I don't know, remote working. My response to that would be, we've done some. I actually ended up creative directing a, a global Biennale with eight different event platforms. So there's so much interesting stuff going on in the software space with events. My uh, advice to, what's he called? He's Franz, but Johnny Buffon is the CEO of Hopin. Johnny Buffon, what a name. Got to write a film about that. Love it. (laughs) It's very easy to grow a company quickly. It's not easy to grow a culture. And it's the biggest mistake that startups make to think you can grow, grow, grow. There's a whole bunch of architecture, people architecture, that you need to build for that to work. Maybe not in a year, maybe not in two years. But if you're growing that fast, you lose connection between people. People get confused. It's really exciting. And again, because you also know that I've been working in sort of digital events for, when was my first one? 20 years ago. I wasn't going to say it. You can. (laughs) (laughs) 20 years ago. So for me, again, all of this stuff is just total common sense. It's like, well, of course you can do events that, that, well, people are remote because we've been doing it for a long time and yeah i'm super excited about the potential of what can happen in events and and actually when you think about it large corporations are just a framework of individuals it's very easy to think about them as machines the company there is no such thing as the company all there is a bunch of individuals who happen to be working under that particular mothership but those individuals are unbelievably rational and complex and unless you understand what makes those people tick here's a a figure i may have said this before 87 percent of the worldwide workforce are disengaged doesn't surprise me but yeah you i think in the first podcast interview we did with you you told me that and i was just like that's no surprise i would even say 87 percent or more kids at school are disengaged as well but that's another topic of conversation as well But very similar, because actually, if you create environments in which people can thrive, doesn't matter whether you're in an education setting, whether you're in a public organization, doesn't matter. It's the same thing. That's what leaders are doing. Exactly. And that's why I said the analogy, I'm sure the number will be equally high. I know when I watch my Mm -hmm. daughter doing video calls with her teachers and they just still still lecturing at the kids and and giving them rote learning learn that chapter and come back and we'll test you next week and it's like the kids are like oh my god this is so boring and yet in front of them are tools and capabilities and so when my daughter had to learn on her own because there was no teachers in the first lockdown available because they hadn't set up zoom and she loved it she was getting her textbook out reading bits going to youtube watching videos doing all sorts of different ways of learning and she came out on a piece of work she did with a nine and she's learned a whole topic on her own she said i much prefer doing it this way but of course now she's had to go back into the straight jacketed old way of doing things are by via zoom but it's still a one-to-many lecture absolutely absurd and you're right and as you're talking i'm thinking that the way that we do all of our all our leadership development work is we have a really intense rapid prototyping session where we identify a challenge, shared challenge. We get those leaders to co-create hacks, how to overcome that challenge. And then at the end of the workshop, we tell them to go and put it into practice. Mm. Because people don't learn by listening. They don't learn by reading. They no. learn by doing. Yeah. If, if we're saying this to senior leaders, why are we saying that to kids? Exactly. 
I don't know how you learn cats, but I'm a very visual learner. So if somebody says we need to go and change the faucet on a tap, I go, OK, I have no idea. I'm certainly not going to pick up a book and read it. I'm going to go to YouTube and watch it the way I learn. And, and why are we forcing kids to go through black and white text based heavy books? It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Who am I to make a change there? No, I 100% agree. And especially in a world where all of the companies are looking for people who are capable and driven by self-learning because things change all the time. You listen to exactly. the kind of, so, so why are we learning facts? It's like everything you want to oh. find. Tip of your fingers, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's called Google. Literally, I want to know something, ask it a question, there's the answer. But now I've got the answer. How do I contextually think about the answer and put it into a structure where I can reuse that contextual information? I now know. And again, then it becomes a new habit. We could talk about this forever and a day, but I want to make sure that everybody, first of all, remind them again where they can go to get more information about Frontline, please, cats. Frontline.live. Excellent. Well, if you need to contact us, and oh, let me also say that we are mm. always looking for people to help volunteer. So if you feel the urge to help us, either with our communications or with our development, we would love to hear from you. Or if you want us to know more about Frontline Live or the partnership with Hermes and Med Supply Drive and Healthcare Workers Foundation, frontline at wearebeep, all one word, dot com. And of course, they should check out Beep as well if you're a corporate company and you're looking for somebody to help you develop to have an imaginal leadership. So again, go to Beep as well. Or Cats Kitty. I'm all over the internet. If you can't find me, there's something wrong. <laughs> Cats, thank you so much as ever for your time. And thank you so much for all the work you did with Frontline during COVID. And I look forward to hearing all about post-COVID, whether the imaginal leadership has taken hold and whether people are sticking with it or sadly going back to the old normal rather than the better normal. Thank you so much for the invite. It's been a pleasure, as always, Sam. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. Don't forget to visit samtalks.technology to discover more great shows. See you next week. Same time, same place.